This is Billy Bates, and thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Any resemblance between events, places, and persons, living or dead in this story, is purely coincidental and a figment of your imagination. Like my mama said, you just dreamed that up and I'd be ashamed. When the nearly departed become the dearly departed. Growing up in the South with a close family connection to tobacco farmers afforded me some experiences with death and dying that carried over 200 years of traditions. Nestled in the heart of rural farmland outside of Greensboro, North Carolina, is the Simpson Miller Funeral Home. When I was growing up, it was a two-story, white-framed farmhouse built around 1900 that had been converted into a funeral home. It sat back from the road and was surrounded by woods, with the exception of a strip of lawn leading down to the road. As a young boy, it wasn't enough for me to get scared knowing I was going to a funeral home. It also looked like a haunted house with dark windows on the first and second floors. I was terrified and certain that the dead inside the house would rise from their coffins and step out of them to wreak havoc on the living with their bulging eyes, extended frozen arms, and grasping claws. Because my mother had grown up in a large family on a farm in that county, it seems that we had relatives everywhere. That also meant there was a steady march of elderly and sick ones on their way to the grave. It was not unusual for our family to end up there for a visitation on at least one Saturday night a month. It was also not unusual in rural funeral homes like this one to place netting over the occupied coffin to keep the insects at bay. This was especially true in the summer if the windows were open and didn't happen to have screens. One particular Saturday morning in mid-July, my mother announced that we were going to the funeral home that night to see my mother's sister-in-law's father, who had died a couple of days earlier. Now, the three of you go to your rooms and lay out what you're going to wear tonight so I can make sure you'll be dressed up nicely. I hated to go out on Saturday night, especially to a funeral home. It meant I would miss the Jackie Gleason show and particularly the June Taylor dancers. Much to my father's chagrin, as soon as they kicked off a dance number, I was up in front of the television dancing right along with them and absolutely certain that June would one day hire me as part of her troupe. The time finally arrived for us to get dressed and go. My brother and I had on our coats and ties, and of course, as soon as my mother put a dress on my sister, she started screaming and crying. She hated dresses. That didn't last long, though, because my mother grabbed her by the arm and just about jerk it out of the socket and yell, You keep up that crying, missy, and I'm going to give you something to cry about. My brother, sister, and I climbed into the back seat of the black and white 1956 Buick Special, and as my parents sat down in the front seat, my father turned around and said, I know three children who had better pull those bottom lips in and stop pouting. I don't want to have to tear all three of you up on the side of the road, but I will if I have to. He meant it. He kept a belt over the sun visor and had no problem taking it out and putting it to use when necessary. After a brief ride in the countryside, we turned into the driveway of the funeral home, parked, and then entered the place. The overpowering scent of lilies hit me the minute I stepped in the door. All of the draperies, walls, and carpeting were in dark tones of maroon, navy blue, and a depressing shade of green. The air was heavy with heat and humidity. Our parents let us pass the guest register where the front hallway was lined with small groups of the bereaved. There were soft whispers and sound of sniffles and the sharing of tissues. As we progressed to the viewing room, I caught snippets of conversation. How he suffered. Thank God it wasn't for long. You know the doctors just cut him open and shook their heads and closed him back up.
Mr. Simpson used too much makeup on him. He never fixed his hair like that. We entered the viewing room, filled shoulder to shoulder with relatives of all ages. At last, we were brought alongside the coffin in which lay a very old and certainly dead man in a black suit, white shirt, and a dark blue tie. The coffin was covered with netting. I was paralyzed with fear that he would suddenly sit up, lean over, and look at me and say, I'm coming to get you, Billy. Daddy pushed all three of us up next to the coffin and said, Now y'all say goodbye to Great Uncle Floyd. He's gone on to his reward. My brother and I were just tall enough to peek over the edge of the casket and see him. My sister, who was no older than three, couldn't see anything. So Daddy picked her up by the waist and lifted her up to the coffin to get a good look. Just as Joan was hovering directly over Great Uncle Floyd, she let out a scream and shouted, Daddy, a fly just walked up that man's nose. Many of my relatives in the room let out a collective gasp and raised their hands to their mouths as my parents rushed us out of the room and then out of the building. Needless to say, they didn't take us to the funeral. The morticians in the Simpson Miller Funeral Home also went out into the community to practice their expertise on the various corpses to be laid out in the front parlors of many a farmhouse. I heard my grandparents and aunts and uncles tell the following legendary story about the Witters over the years. The Witters were distantly related to my mother's relatives. They were often referred to as the white trash branch of the family. As a small child, I remember being in the back seat of a car on the way to visit our grandparents, and as we drove by the house, which had no screens on the windows and the front door was propped open, I glanced in to see a large hog laying on the floor watching television with the rest of the family. Grandpa Witter had died at the age of 96, and his oldest daughter and her husband, Erlene and O'Dale, offered to let Grandpa's coffin be placed in their living room for the two days of visitation preceding the funeral. It was late in the afternoon when the hearse finally arrived, and Mr. Miller knocked at the door. Erlene, with her hair teased up to a massive height and wearing a cherry red pantsuit, answered the door, clutching a tissue to her face. As the door swung open, a chicken walked out the entryway beside her and trotted down into the yard. Well, hello, Erlene. How are you faring, given all that you've been going through? Erlene let out a sob. Lord, I'm doing the best as can be expected, Cletus. I thought Daddy would live forever, but I guess everybody's time runs out sometime. Having my sisters Janelle, Dottie, and Tammy Lynn with me through this has been such a comfort. Well, bring him on in. Me and Odell thought Daddy would like it right here by the front picture window. That way, when anybody is a-driving by, they can glance over and get a good look at him. Cletus motioned for the two young men in suits who had come with him to bring Grandpa Witter's coffin on into the house. Erlene had planned ahead and had her dinette table that seated four moved from the kitchen into the living room in front of the large window. She had draped the table with a white bedsheet on which she had strategically placed iron-on applique patches of angels, crosses, the pearly gates, and other related symbols that she was sure Grandpa Witter had already witnessed during his glorious ascent to heaven. The young men placed the coffin on the table, and Cletus opened the upper half of it. Erlene and her sisters gathered around and peered in. Lord, don't he look good. Cletus, you done a good job with him. Lord of mercy, it looks like he's just about to sit up and say, hey. You done a good job of covering up them marks they made on his face when they tried to revive him. Janelle, I'm so glad we ain't burying him in one of them shrouds and in a suit. Them shrouds are morbid. They give me bad nightmares. Erlene finally added, well, Cletus, y'all come on out to the kitchen 
get you some iced tea and a plate of food. I'll Swanee, we got enough in there to feed Pharaoh's army. Kitchen counters were nearly sagging under the weight of the fried chicken, deviled eggs, green bean and squash casseroles, and orange, yellow, and red congealed salads filled with miniature marshmallows, pineapple, and chopped pecans. Large platters of homemade biscuits stuffed with country ham, mashed potatoes and gravy, and miniature pimento cheese sandwiches beckoned. On the center table rested coconut pound and chocolate cakes surrounded by Toll House cookies, chess and lemon meringue pie, and a massive peach cobbler. They all retired to the kitchen to partake in the truckload of food that had been brought to the house that day, and then Cletus and his gentlemen departed, satisfied with their day's work. The lone chicken that had been a guest in the house now stood under an elm tree in the front yard and glared at them as they left. The day drew to a close as all of Odell's and Earlene's family gathered at their house to have supper and a nice long visit with Grandpa Witter. A few quiet hours passed and then a little after 2 a.m. the Miller's phone rang and Cletus answered. Oh, law, Cletus, you got to get over here right away. Something bad and awful's done happened, was Earlene, sopping as she choked to get the words out with a voice that sounded like it verged on the edge of a nervous collapse. The whole family is here and in an uproar. Ain't nothing like this ever happened, and none of us knows what to do next. I'm on my way, Earlene, Cloud shouted into the receiver. He quickly dressed and headed out. As Cletus turned his Corvair into the widow's driveway, he looked up to see every light in the house blazing. Through the closed sheer curtains, he could see people running from room to room, clearly in a panic. As soon as he started into the driveway, the front door flung open and Odell, barefoot and in a pair of orange and green and white striped pajamas with diamond shapes, shot down the steps and across the yard to the car door. Lord Cletus, you ain't come a minute too soon. The whole family is so worked up that Dottie is in there on the phone trying to get a hold of Doc Burnside to get some nerve pills to calm us all down. I hope to hell you can figure this thing out. Before Cletus could open his mouth, Odell snatched the door open and dragged him out of the car, strong-arming him all the way into the house. As soon as he stepped into the door, he could hear crying and high-pitched wailing coming from everywhere. Tammy Lynn and Janelle ran up to him, bawling their eyes out, and through their sobs they were blubbering, We done Grandpa wrong. He ain't never going to forgive us. He'll come back as a haint, and he's going to torment us the rest of our living days. As they pushed Cletus through the doorway to the living room, he looked over at the coffin. It was empty. Three or four relatives were on their knees facing the coffin with their faces looking upward and their hands locked in a prayer position, rocking back and forth while they howled and cried out things like, Jesus, forgive us. We didn't know what we was doing. Lord, don't rain down your lightning on us and send us all to hell for what we done to Grandpa. Dear sweet Jesus, don't send Grandpa back as a haint to torment us until our dying day for what we done. As Cletus stood, stupefied by this spectacle, Earlene suddenly grabbed him by the arm and started dragging him towards the hallway. Grandpa is back down in there, Cletus. You come on with me and see what we has done. Earlene leaned him down the hallway that was lined with sniffing relatives, big and small, their hands clutching wads of sodden tissues. She led him into the bedroom at the end of the hall. There on the bed, flat on his back, with his arms laid out high above his head, was Grandpa. His eyes were wide open as he lay there staring blankly at the ceiling. Surrounding the bed were more relatives, most of them with their faces in their hands. What in the name of heaven has happened here? What is he doing out of his coffin? Cletus shouted. Ella Mae Hickey, one of the second removed cousins of the sisters, stepped up. 
Definitely on the hefty side, she was in a green flannel nightgown with tiny white rabbits and turtles, so tight it left nothing to the imagination, and yellow chenille bedroom slippers. She had a face like a cabbage patch doll, but it was still heavily made up from the day. She bawled, Cletus, we didn't mean to harm nobody. We just got to talking after midnight, and we realized that we ain't got no good family picture with Grandpa. So Odell and a couple of other fellows pulled him out of the coffin and set him up in a chair in the living room. Me and Janelle took some scotch tape and taped his eyelids soaping so he would look alive. Sugar, the maid that works for Odell and Erling, was still in the kitchen a-cleaning up, and her husband, Mr. Jarrell, had showed up just to get her. Afore she left, we asked her to take a picture of all of us with Grandpa. When first she first seen him, she screamed and went a-running out of the house, yelling, He's come back! He's come back! Odell caught up with Sugar and grabbed her by the arms and explained and offered her $5 to come back in and take the photos. Sugar snapped about 10 pictures and we thanked her and she left. Then the awful thing happened. Odell and them other men picked up Grandpa and went back to slide him in the coffin, but he wouldn't go in. They tried bending his feet to get him in, but that weren't no good. They tried everything they could think of before they finally gave up and carried him back to the bedroom. Laid him on the bed and then we called you. What you reckon we gonna do, Cletus? Cletus, with his right hand covering his mouth to hide his smile, said, Y'all come on back up to the front room with me now. They all trailed behind him back to the front parlor and stood in the room. Cletus walked over to the coffin and turned to the family and said, Now y'all looky here. He reached down, unclasped the latches, and opened the bottom of the coffin. The group let out a collective gasp. Without missing a beat, Erling called out, Lord, y'all run back down the hall and get Grandpa and put him back in here before the wrath of God comes down on all of us. Four of the men rushed down the hall, grabbed Grandpa by his legs and feet, and carried him back up the hall and placed him back in the coffin in a flash. Erlene stepped up and closed the lower half. Oh, praise Jesus, that's over. I just hope he don't come visiting us tonight after we've gone to bed to punish us for what we've done. Thank you, Cletus. Several of them called out as he exited the front door and headed back to the car. Arlene gave the instructions to her sisters while the others in the family either left out the front door to go home or sauntered back to their respective bedrooms. Now, Janelle, you open up them front curtains so the passers-by can see Grandpa. Tammy Lynn, reach up there and turn on them clip-on work locks I bought at the hardware store to show him off real good. Okay, I think we's done. I'll see you all in the morning. Lord, I am worn to a frazzer after all of this. Then there was a distant relative's funeral about, gosh... 35 years ago, where the patriarch of the family, who had lived to a ripe old age of 103, had died. As was my family duty, I was in attendance with a slew of other relatives. Service was held in the small country church, and as was the custom, the gentleman who died and was displayed in all of his glory in an open coffin at the front of the church. Those wishing to get one last look before the lid was closed for eternity were welcome to come forward and pay their respects. To get things rolling, the church pianist, Lolina Bell Garshaw, who was slightly obese and sporting a dark blue choir robe, buck teeth, a slight mustache, cat eyes glasses, and very high hair, waddled over and plopped down at the piano. With a nod and smile to the congregation, she launched into everyone's hymn, Standing on the Promises. Despite the funereal proceedings, Lolina was in a festive mood this particular day and was putting some real energy into her rendition. Her left hand was giving the hymn a bit of a ragtime treatment with a rousing 2-4 rhythm. It was when she started the second verse 
and began adding rolling arpeggios to the right hand that Miss Dory, the eldest daughter of the deceased, was let in while being held up by her two grandsons on each side. Seventy years old, Miss Dory had lived at home with her father her entire life and was now crushed with grief that she would have to go on alone. Dressed from head to toe in black, including a wide-brimmed black hook with a black veil, she stumbled up the aisle. To the horror of all in attendance, she was sobbing at the top of her lungs the entire way. Women in the congregation covered their mouths and shook their heads. Small children tried to hide behind their parents in the pews. Grown men looked on in shock and disbelief at the spectacle. By this time, the minister had stepped out into the pulpit in preparation for the beginning of the service. When Miss Dory was about three feet away from the coffin, she broke free of her grandsons, ran to it, and threw herself on top of it, screaming, Daddy, don't go! As soon as the grandsons attempted to pry her grip on the dead man loose to no avail, the minister, looking on in horror, motioned for the congregation to stand, and in an attempt to drown out Miss Dory's wailing, he instructed them to belt out the last two verses of Standing on the Promises. They did not succeed. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about me, my writing, and additional stories from my collection, visit www.billybates.com. That's www.billybates.com.